Welcome to another of our Lemacy Walk and Talk podcast with myself, Sue Langley, and today joined by the amazing Ellen Langer. Dr. Ellen Langer is a professor in the psychology department at Harvard University, and recently her new book, The Mindful Body, has been published, and it is a fabulous book uh, going back to some of her research from 45 years ago to some of the most recent research with some wonderful and unique uh, ideas, findings that can really transform our lives. So please join me for a fabulous conversation with Ellen Langer. All right, let's officially start. So um, we are here today with the fabulous Ellen Langer. And Ellen, I invited you for our very first Learn With Sue. And three years later, you're wrapping up our year. So welcome to the fabulous Ellen Langer. And we're going to delve much more into who you are and what you do in a moment. But welcome. Thank you. So, um, Ellen, uh, many of you already know Ellen Langer's work, um, and many of you, we've spent time talking about it, and many of you will know um, that I'm a big fan of, um, of Ellen Langer's work. So, Ellen, I think you're so much more than your work, but one of the things that I like to start with is how do you see yourself? Because you have many roles, as whether it's partner or um, whether it's a professor or whether it's a doctor, a researcher or a book writer. How do you define or identify yourself? Oh, gee, um, it depends on the context. And I tend not to define myself. Wherever I am, whatever is going on, that's who I am. So when I'm on the tennis court, it's the tennis or the athlete in me. When I'm painting, it's the painter and so on. How do you define yourself? Well, it's funny because when I get asked that question, I usually say I'm a human being and kind of leave it at that. <laughs> Okay, so not so, so different many. from my answer. Yeah, well, we're so many things. To your to your point, we don't want to put ourselves in one bucket. So, right. so um, yeah. Ellen, thank you so much for coming along. And I know, obviously, you've got a new book, and many of our people on here, I know, have either ordered it, waiting for it, bought it, read it, etc. But I would like to sort of go back to, I suppose, sort of the first half of the book and some of your earlier work for people to understand a little bit more about where you started, why you started in this area of mindfulness compared to mindlessness as opposed to meditation mindfulness? Well, first of all, uh, as you know, the book started off as a memoir. So there are lots of personal stories in it. And those personal stories in part help answer the question you're asking, why am I doing this? Um, the so I don't know where to begin. You know, I can start defining things or tell you my personal journey. Put me on a track. Which would you like first? Let's start with the personal journey and then we'll get to the defining. Okay, sure. Okay. Um, well, the very personal, I don't even know if I have this in the book, but I was very, very fortunate. I was brought up by parents who were extraordinarily supportive and loving. And so I was a happy camper and constantly meeting people who are not so happy. So from a very early age, I would give them a different way of looking at things. And I remember once this person said to me, why are you smiling? And as a little kid, you know, I quickly stopped smiling. And then, you know, I got a little older and now my response is, well, why aren't you smiling? So, so I've been on this quest 
to try to help people be as happy and enjoy the same sort of life that I enjoy. But the most of the work um, in, in this, uh, the mindful body, not all of it, but a lot of it is about health and the control we have both over our health and our happiness. And the control is enormous. Um, I, I don't think people, even professionals, really realize uh, how uh, we keep ourselves back. But I had a very early experience that um, I didn't develop the theory of mind-body unity when I had this experience. I was too young, but it's, it's kind of fun. So I was married when I was very, very young. And we went to Paris on our honeymoon. And now I was 19 going on 40. You know, I was a woman of the world. And um, so we go out to eat and I ordered this mixed grill and on the plate was pancreas. And I asked my then husband to point out which of these was the pancreas. He pointed, I ate everything else, but now came the moment of truth. Could I eat the pancreas? And I had to, because I had to prove that I was all grown up. And I start getting sick, literally sick. And he starts laughing. And I said, why are you laughing? He said, because that's chicken. You ate the pancreas a while ago. So I had made myself sick. And so my life's goal is to figure out how we can make ourselves better rather than, um, you know. Uh, so um, I, I think that that's a, a large part of all of my work is it's always been, we do these very simple things that have enormous consequences. Um, early on giving people choices and they end up living longer. And uh, the results from all the mindfulness studies themselves are uh, in some ways extraordinary. You know, no matter what you're doing, you can do it mindfully or mindlessly. And the consequences um, are enormous. Whether you're eating a sandwich, doing a podcast, giving a course, uh, watching television. And so we have all of these years over 45 years, well, not over, 45 years of research where we're just plugging in different uh, measures. And on each of them, we get improvements. People are happier, they're healthier, they live longer, the memory is better, their relationships are better. When you're mindful, people see you as charismatic, trustworthy, authentic. Um, it even leaves its imprint on the things that we do. And um, so when we get to it, and I can share with people just how easy it is to be mindful, given the consequences are so enormous, I can see no reason why anybody would hesitate uh, to turn their lives around instantly. Mm. But maybe okay. it's important for me to tell people what I mean by mindfulness. Because yeah, I was say, uh, you're students around yes. your mindfulness. Yeah, your students, I'm sure most of them know, but probably not all. Lots of people, when you use the word mindfulness, they think of meditation. And meditation isn't mindfulness. Meditation is a practice you go through to result in post meditative mindfulness. Mindfulness as we study it is immediate. It's not a practice. Once you understand that you don't know anything, which is very hard, you know, I'm Harvard Yale all the way through, right? So when I say I don't know anything, we can, you know, people may find it easier to recognize, but they don't either because everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. So all the things you think you know may be true, but in this particular context, whatever that context is, may not be true. So when you know you don't know, then you pay attention, right? If your listeners knew what I was going to say next, why would they listen? Okay. And so um, basically, 
because things are changing, um, we can't be sure of anything. And that's a good thing. Now, the problem is when people know they don't know, they get nervous because they think they're supposed to know. And, and some CEO type is acting as if he knows. He doesn't know, I don't know, you don't know, you can't know in any absolute way, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a central, you know, and I uh, often use an example for this to bring the point home. The one thing that everybody thinks they know better than anything else, how much is one plus one? Well, you've heard me talk, so you know the answer, but most people, as you have all the people who know the answer, ask your parents, your friends, and they will tell you two. But one in one doesn't equal two as or more often as it does. If you add one pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. One cloud plus one cloud equals one, and so on. And so the, the reason it's a good illustration be, is because not just that you thought you knew it and hey, maybe you're wrong, but that now if after we finish, somebody were to ask you, so how much is one plus one? You wouldn't mindlessly blurt out two. You'd pay attention to the context and then you'd answer more mindfully, like not it is two, it could be two. It's often too. It's a very different way of understanding the world. And I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but my world changed. That was many years ago. I'm at this horse event. And this man asked me, well, I watch his horse for him because he wants to get his horse a hot dog. Well, I learned just as I learned one and one is two. I learned horses are herbivorous. They don't eat meat. So I say, sure, I'll watch the horse thinking he's crazy. He comes back with the hot dog. The horse ate it. Oh, everything changed for me. I love the fact that I don't know anything because that means everything is possible. And so a lot of my work is designed to test possibility uh, rather than just describe what is. And, um, And that's how I can easily say to you that we're capable of so much more than we realize. You want me to let you speak or I can just, I'm like a depressive. No, I love you guys. But there's something you said there that's interesting is when we feel like we don't know, we can get uncertain. So like you say, sometimes in a leadership role, people pretend to know because they should because they're the leader. How do you help people get used to the fact that it's okay to not know? Well, yeah, once, you know, the way most people are now when they get uncomfortable is because they're making a personal attribution for uncertainty. They're saying, I don't know, but it's knowable. And you may know, so therefore I have to pretend or just keep quiet and hope you don't find out. (laughs) Once you adopt a universal attribution for uncertainty, I don't know, you don't, nobody knows. And, you know, and if once you become persuaded to that, then not knowing is fine. And then the stance you want to take as a, as a leader, just as an effective person is to be confident, but uncertain. Mm. Okay. Now, most people um, um, combine those in, in different ways. They think that you can't be confident unless you know. But if you think you know, uh, then you're being mindless. And so once you really adopt this understanding of uncertainty, everything is new. And then you get a chance to experience all the benefits to which other people are blind, avoid the pitfalls that um, when you're mindless, uh, you succumb to. Um, the world just opens up. I love that. And it's so easy. You know, you just notice. Yeah. You know, that if you notice, okay, so, yeah. 
Very simple. So if you can't convince yourself that everything is uncertain, just look at the things you think you know. Open the door to your house. Look outside. Notice three new things. Go to work. Notice four new things. It doesn't matter. Three, five, four. About the person sitting next to you. About the job. About how you feel right now. Just about everything. And as soon as you do this often enough, notice that the things you thought you knew you didn't really know as well as you thought, then your attention naturally goes to them and you stop being so um, sure that you know. You know, before I started painting, if you had asked me, other than in the fall, what color are leaves? And I would have said green. And I knew leaves were green. Then I started to paint and wow, I mean, there are hundreds at minimum of different shades of green. You know, it's not, you, you can look at the same thing over and over again, and it's changing, you're changing. So what you're going to notice is different. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting because this very simple process of noticing is the essence of engagement. And engagement is the way you feel when you're you know, feeling passionate about something, when you're having a good time, when you're at play, you know, and you can bring that about yourself. You don't need to wait. All you need to do is start noticing. An example I used the other day, I'm not sure why, but I think it was in a class. I started to talk about the Birdman of Alcatraz. Now, I don't know if there's a book written or whatever. I saw the movie. This is forever ago. I think it was with Burt Lancaster. So he's in a cell, a little cell. And you'd imagine that most people uh, be quite miserable, right? They have no control over anything. Um, they can't be doing the things they used to do. But as Tennyson said, walls do not a prison make. And so He's in this cell and a pigeon shows up and he starts noticing things about the pigeon. And then another pigeon, he starts taking care of them. And, you know, this became um, uh, an avocation for him that uh, it was very exciting. It wasn't just that he was just passing his time, you know, that um, when you're at your best, when your relationships are are most full, um, when you're feeling most satisfied, it's because of this act of noticing. Nothing more than that. So you have a lot of people who say, oh, you know, I can't find a passion. Um, I don't know what job to take, you know, and in some sense, it doesn't matter. No matter what you do, as with a pigeon, just start noticing. And then uh, it comes alive. And what happens, the neurons are firing when you're noticing, and it's literally and figuratively enlivening. So people can see you, people are drawn to you. You know, um, you you can trust somebody when they're mindful because you have a sense that they're there, but they're non-evaluative. Um, you know, we have expressions in the states. You, you probably have in um, your part of the world as well. You ever hear the expression of the lights on but nobody's home? Mm-hmm. Person has one oar in the water. Any of these? Well, the sad thing is when we say these things we act as if it's the odd person who's not fully present (laughs) but the research we've done over over 40 years has shown that virtually all of us are mindless almost all the time Mm. um which which is sad now the thing is when you're mindless you're not there to know you're not there so you can't easily change it and then you have all these do-gooders and it's very sweet when people say you know be in the present well you can't just be in the present because when you're not there, you don't know you're not in the present. The way to be in the present is just notice. Notice new things. Your attention naturally goes to it. Very simple. And the findings are extraordinary. Um, 
So, so let's have a look at some of those findings. And, and I'm going to sort of link uh, back and sort of more current. So your counterclockwise study was became very famous and, and whatever you, but it was um, uh, Francesco Pangini uh, sort of did one fairly recently in Italy, like a few years ago, of sort of trying to replicate yeah. those things with a population. Um, and people will be familiar with that. What was the results from the, the more recent study with Francesco? Um, you'll have to ask him. I know that he, um, I don't think that he had people for a full week living, you know, in a retreat and what have because that was a very expensive proposition. Um, but by putting people back in time, you know, oh, it, and I think time. people should understand. So the, the counterclockwise, you know, sometimes when that study first came out, which was forever ago, people thought that I was saying that literally we were making people younger. Well, if you're 25, you're 25. I can't make you 20, but I can um, encourage you to behave in such a way that people couldn't tell whether you were your 25 or your 20 year old self. And the point of the study is that we are capable, no matter how old, of so much more than we realize that by putting people back in the past, uh, by, they bypass all the self-talk that says they can't. And um, and then they're able to do remarkable things. So this was a case where we took older men. Uh, we had them live in a retreat that was retrofitted to 20 years earlier as if they were their younger selves. They talked about uh, past events as if they were just unfolding and so on. And, you know, um, when I ran this study, it was sort of, it, it was remarkable to me because in a very short time, you could almost feel the change. You know, when they showed up to be in the study, usually their adult daughter brought them and they're doddering down the hall and, you know, to see if they could pass the test to be able to go away for the week. I didn't think they were going to be able to live past the day. And I thought, you know, <laughs> what am I doing by being responsible for these old men for a week's time? And then once their daughters and caretakers, you know, lovely people who were very caring, but over caring left and they saw they had to do it for themselves. Um, in a very short time, they just, you know, started to, uh, to follow the script in some sense. And, um, you know, and, and again, what we found was that, um, their hearing improved, their vision improved, their memory improved, their strength, and they looked noticeably younger, all without any medical intervention. So that was the first counterclockwise. That was the first mind-body study. Mind-body, you know, my argument was mind-body, they're just words. If we put the mind and body back together, which is what these studies that we'll talk about do, wherever you put the mind, you're necessarily putting the body. So we do a host of studies where we put the mind in unusual places, you know, the first study back in time, 20 years, um, and then take our measurements. Now, the world of medicine, not that many decades ago, believed uh, the medical model was such that psychology, attitudes, thoughts, stress didn't matter. I'm sure they wanted people to be happy because why not? But uh, as far as that affecting disease, you know, it was irrelevant. And then everything has moved along, which is very nice. And so people then talk about a mind-body connection. I'm not, and, and you can't really talk, how do you get from this fuzzy thing called a thought to something material called about how are they connected? So to me, the only way to deal with the problem is just make it one. 
Mm-hmm. And everybody has had experience. You know, you might uh, in the fall or oh, well, winter we are now, you know, a leaf blows in your face and you're, you know, you jar, you're um, startled by it, scared, your blood pressure and pulse increase until you realize it was just a leaf. You see somebody regurgitating on the side of the road, you start to feel physically ill, you know, as my example with eating the pancreas. Um, so we've all had experience with it, but I don't think people have any idea how far we can take the you know take the whole thing so let me tell you about one or two other of the mind body studies but then make sure i get back to studying talking to you about fatigue okay because fatigue is a psychological construct and it's a good example because it's the kind of thing where people feel look i'm just too tired you can't tell me that you know i'm exhausted that there's anything i can tell myself to do where i'm not going to be this exhausted and so when i persuade people who have that view, I think then they're more likely to believe a lot of this um, other stuff. Um, but the next study in the mind-body um, series was with chambermaids. And you know, chambermaids are exercising all day long, but it turns out they don't see themselves as exercising. They think exercise is what you do afterward because that's what the Surgeon General in the state says. Okay, so very simple study. We teach one group that their work is exercise. Making a bed is like working on this machine at the gym. Mopping is like working on this other machine and so on. So we have two simple groups. One thinks their work is exercise, one doesn't realize. We take a million measures, many measures before, then at the end, uh, at the end, we want to make sure that they're not eating any differently. They're not working any harder. The only thing that's changed is their, their mindset. As a result of now seeing they work as exercise, they lost weight. There was a change in waist to hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down just by changing their minds. I'm not going to go through all the studies because people can read about them, but let me just tell you the most recent, okay? Yes, Which was we we inflict we give people a wound. And then, you know, we're not going to make it a bad wound because I'm not sadistic, <laughs> but it's still a wound. And unbeknownst to them, they're in front of a clock. Unbeknownst to them, the clock is going twice as fast as real time, half as fast as real time, or real time. And the question we're asking is, will that wound heal based on real time, which is what everybody would assume, or perceived time, what the clock tells them, even though the clock, again, is rigged. And it turns out uh, the wound heals based on perceived time. We're doing a study now uh, with lots of different disorders where different kinds of surgery, where instead of what uh, medical people typically tell you, which is the longest time or the medium amount of time to heal, we're telling people the quickest time. You know, some people heal as quickly as one week. And I'll have to come back when we finish that study and tell you the results. But, you know, my guess is they're going to heal an awful lot faster. It's funny uh, you say so, that, because um, I gashed my hand um, doing uh, gardening last weekend. And I said to my husband, how long do you think it will take to heal? He said, oh, a couple of weeks. It's pretty deep. It's nearly gone because I decided it was going to heal in less than a week. Exactly. And like, oh. where, you know, where do those numbers come from? Right. <laughs> I love it. 
So let's talk about some of the newer um, sort of research. And you specifically in your book use the phrase attention to variability. And yeah, so this is okay. So let me let me give you the lead up to this. So uh, to my mind, placebos are our strongest medication. Now, you give um, virtually all diseases, um, give people a sugar pill, and at least a third of them will heal. So now what's happening there? Because the pill by definition is inert. It's not doing anything. Um, you're healing yourself. And so my one of my life goals has been, why do we need the middleman? Why do we need this doctor to give me this nothing for me to do what I'm doing? So that's what we set out is to try to figure out um, you know, how to have people heal themselves. And you can't give yourself a placebo because you can't, you know, I mean, you could if you were schizophrenic. I don't know if you could or not, but it's, it's unlikely. You know, you have to believe that the pill is going to work for it to work. Okay. Um, so what we did, and I, I'll tell you what we did in all these studies, but then make sure I tell you how you do this for yourself, because yeah. that was the main goal, to make it so we could heal ourselves. Okay. So when you're given a diagnosis for, <clears throat> excuse me, for a chronic disease, almost everybody assumes your symptoms will get worse, stay the same or get worse. Hmm. Not that they'll ever get better because that's what they think it means to be chronic. Nothing goes in only one direction. All right. You know, so, um, uh, you know, let's either up or down. I mean, the stock market, you know, it goes up a little, then tiny bit down, hopefully up again. And okay, but moving in one direction, as would be if your symptoms were getting worse in the opposite directions. Okay, so what's happening when the symptoms are actually better? Nobody pays attention to that, but that's what this is all about. So let's say chronic pain, we have it for so many studies. Um, We're going to call you periodically and ask you how you feel. Now, what happened? And then we're going to ask you, um, is it better or worse than the last time? And why? Three things happen with this. The first, by asking you, is it better or worse than before? Uh, you're going to notice change rather than think that it's always the same. Okay. And sometimes that change is going to be in, in the better direction. Then by asking you, why? This is the most important part. Now, what you have to do is do a mindful search and figure out why. Why now? Is it a little better? What's different? Am I sitting more differently? Did I eat anything differently? Did I have a nice conversation with Sue? What is it? And that is mindful. And you know, from all the work we've done before this, that mindfulness itself is good for your health and feels good. And so also now you're doing something where you're actually feeling some control, potential control over this chronic illness, which itself is also good. And then finally, I believe that if you look for a solution, you're more likely to find one. Okay, so let's let's do it with stress because it's true for almost everything. So let's say you're stressed all the time. Well, nobody is stressed all the time. The thing is that when you're not stressed, you're not thinking about the stress. So you have, you're thinking about stress, you're very stressed, then you're off doing something else. And then you're stressed again, and you forget that intervening time. Okay, so I call you, um, how are you, Sue? Um, is your stress better or worse than the uh, last time we spoke? Um, and then why? And you try to figure this out, and you can't always figure it out. 
you know, certainly not um, uh, usually that easily, but it doesn't matter because the search is good for you. Mm -hmm. All right. And then what happens is you discover, you know, you feel maximally stressed when you're talking to Ellen Langer. Okay. Solution <laughs> easy. Don't talk to me. <laughs> All right. Or make the conversation like with other people. All right. Well, so now this very simple thing of noticing when it's better, when it's worse and asking why we've done this with um, people who have uh, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, chronic pain, stress, arthritis. Uh, I mean, a host of big things. And in each case, we find almost complete relief. I mean, it's remarkable. Now, uh, so you might say, well, I said you could do it yourself, but here we're calling people, but we all have smartphones or most of us. And if you don't have one, buy one or steal one, borrow one, you know, <laughs> and, you set, and you set the smartphone to ring in two hours. It rings. How is the symptom? Is it better or worse than before? And why? Then set it for an, an hour and 20 minutes and keep doing this at various times throughout the day, throughout the week. And, um, you know, the whole exercise is mindful. So your your symptoms may be going away just because of the increase in mindfulness, or it may be, you know, uh, as with the stress. So now you're not doing the thing uh, any longer that was causing the problem in the first place. And you but, did these um, studies as well with, because um, I know there's people on the call here that uh, have older parents and this is purely personal. I have older parents um, and uh, you did it with like Alzheimer's. You know, most of us that if, if our parents are alive, chances are they're older. Yeah, which is good. We so are. I'm grateful. Yeah. But my mom, <laughs> my mom was getting really yeah. stressed uh, last weekend because she was going for the test, you know, the health plan that would tell her, you know, is she losing her marbles? And I'm like, mom, yeah. remember you have good days days you have not so good days you forget things you remember things it's all exactly okay. so tell us more about exactly. how you saw that research play out because i thought okay that was yeah well for one thing you know um i teach harvard students so these are very smart young people and you know so if i give them an exam they don't all get a hundred so what does that mean they forgot right um and you know so the point is young people are not infrequently forgetful they just don't think that forgetting is such a big deal, okay? Uh, when you get older, you're looking for uh, signs, you know, that, oh my God. Um, and I think there are several things that are happening there that are a mistake. The first is that when you get older, you can ask your mom this, um, you don't care the same way about things. You know, so, I mean, at my age, you know, Sue, in all honesty, that if we did this 25 years ago, I would have been nervous. I would pay, be paying it. I'd be checking my, you know, how do I look? I'd be doing a lot of things differently, right? At this point in my life, I don't care. Right? <laughs> you know, it just doesn't matter. I'll, I'll do what I'm doing as well as I can do it. And if it works well, that's great. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Absolutely. some of your values change. Now, we're not aware that our values are changing. So what happens when I was that, you know, uh, younger person, 25 years, let's make it 40 years ago. Boy, I'm getting so old. Um, <laughs> that it was very important to learn everybody's name because that way you personalize thing that, that was a good way to get ahead. Again, at this point now, I don't care. If I'm going to have continued interaction with somebody, there'll be plenty of opportunity. 
So now let's say you introduce yourself to me and say, hi, I'm Janet. Okay. Um, and then a few minutes later, I don't remember your name. It's not that I forgot it. I didn't learn it in the first place mm -hmm. because I didn't care. Very different. Yeah. You know, that um, when my students are looking for something in their dorm room, they have one little room. Where could it be? It could only, whatever they're looking for, you know, can only be in a couple of places. Place. <laughs> and their parents have a whole house and have lent things to different siblings and whatever. Sometimes people have more than one house. Uh, they are the ones who are packing you up to go away for a week. Did you leave? You know, it's not, it's not the same comparison, mm. but. What people should do, even if they're suffering with big memory problems, um, is to do the same attention to variability. What are they remembering? What are they forgetting? People act like they're forgetting everything. And you don't forget everything. So if you remember most things, but you forget, um, I don't know, the mailman's name, and you know, you know, you had learned his name, well, Maybe there's some reason for that. But it's also the case when you see you're remembering all of this and not remembering this little bit over here, you worry less about it. Yeah. You know, when you see yourself, when you think, I can't remember any, everything. And I say that, you know, I hear people say that all the time. Um, when you see, you know, so I can't remember 10%, which is a lot of the things I want to remember. I turn it around. I remember 90% is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we should do that with disorders also, because with people who have attention deficit disorders, dyslexic, you know, that if you give somebody who has dyslexia a page to read, and um, on this page, I'll say about 250 words, they may get one or two words wrong. Now, how many of, what is that, two out of... 250, yeah. so you're getting 248. The percentage is very high. And, um, you know, and if we reverse that and say, you know, uh, you're getting 98% of what you're doing correct, nobody would be upset. And being upset is what causes a lot of the problem. Because if you don't think you can remember to go back to your mother, um, then when you're trying to learn something, you're also talking to yourself. You know, I'm not going to be able to, and, you know, and so on. Mm. Um, and not remembering is not always bad. Um, then you have to relearn it, and um, which can be exciting because much of the time when we're remembering something, we're remembering the way it was when we were younger. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you were to read a book, um, let's say when you're, you know, 25 years old, and then you were to read the same book when you're 45 years old, it's going to be a different book unless you read it mindlessly and you read it again when you're 80, it's yet a different book because you bring something new to it each time. Mm -hmm. And so when we're remembering the way most people remember, we're just taking something from the past and bringing it forward whole hog. Mm -hmm. When you don't remember it, you're reconstructing it. Um, so it, this may not make full sense to you, but you know that in the book I talked about this major fire I had that yeah. destroyed 80% um, of what I owned. And, you know, um, all that I had in that house was who I was previously, not who I was at that moment. Yeah. And realizing that, you know, made it easy to let go of it. You know, it's just, I don't know if that, if people can follow this, but what I'm suggesting is that remembering when all you're doing is taking the past and making it 
not changing it all, bringing it into the present is not nearly as good as um, learning, you know, that I didn't like you back then. So now I see you and I treat you as if I still don't like you and so on, rather than imagine how nice it would be for everybody we didn't like if we forgot we didn't like them <laughs> and we interact with them and maybe at this point can come to appreciate them. Thank you so much for listening to another of our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcasts. If you would like more of that fabulous conversation, uh, please consider becoming a member of our Learn With Sue uh, member session, learnwithsue.com.au. I have to admit that is a wonderful session to end our year. Um, If you enjoyed that, then please check out Ellen's book, The Mindful Body. It's a beautiful way of perhaps challenging ourselves about the way we go about life. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you all of you for listening and I'll see you back in the new year.